I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them and they were struck down in the wilderness. Now, these things occurred as examples for us so that we might not desire evil as they did, do not become idolaters as some of them did. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and they rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. And do not complain, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. These things happened to them to serve as an example, and they were written down to instruct us on whom the ends of the ages have come. So if you think you are standing, watch out that you do not fall. No testing has overtaken you that is not common to everyone. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tested beyond your strength. But with the testing, he will also provide the way out so that you may be able to endure it. This is the word of the Lord. My grandfather Biggs died when I was just a toddler. Uh, He and my grandmother had raised their children by that time. They were all adults. My grandmother supported herself by farming this little 40-acre farm all by herself. She had a mule, and she could plow. Uh, She grew things that all farmers grew, things that she could eat. Uh, Very little trading, just things that she could eat. She canned things that would get her through the next winter. When I grew up old enough to be elementary age, my mother and father would take me out to my grandmother's house to help her in the summertime. My grandmother didn't live very close to anyone. It was more than a half mile to her closest neighbor, And in those first years after my grandfather's death, she didn't even have a telephone. She was active in her church. She could catch a ride on Sundays. She usually went to Women's Society of Christian Service. She had a Sunday school class. She seemed to keep up on what was going on in the community, but she had no one with whom to share it. So she talked to me. Uh, When she'd come in the bedroom to wake me up in the morning, she would start talking, and she talked all day. Uh, We picked beans. We picked peas, uh, we gathered corn, we shucked corn, we fed the mule, uh, we gathered eggs, we fed the chickens, we fed the pig, uh, we did all the chores that need to be done on small farms, and she talked. She told me everything, everything. Who was drinking too much? Who was fooling around on his wife? who had gotten angry and slapped his, and she was ready to go take care of him herself. Um, She told me who had lost a job, who was temporarily unemployed, somebody who had a sick baby, somebody whose grandmother had died. But she always came to the end of the day, insisted that we kneel beside my bed and pray. And then she would say, but God will never let more come on us than we can stand. Not ever. That's what Paul said to the church at Corinth. God will never do that. 
I've underlined four things for you to think about as you wait your turn to come to the table. First of all, Paul begins by reciting a part of Israelite history, telling their story. But he's incorporated these Gentiles into the telling of that story. We know that most of the people who had joined the church in Corinth were Gentiles. They'd been heathen and pagan, and Paul incorporates them into the Hebrew story. In his letter to the Romans, he makes that quite clear. You are the wild branch grafted onto the root of Judaism, he said, but Israel's story has become yours. Sue Schellenbarger wrote an article just recently in the Wall Street Journal. She was talking about these difficult economic times we're living in and said, there is a proven, proven statistic that families who have great stories that have been told generation by generation do better in hard times just like they do better in good times. And she mentioned three. One family had told her about their grandfather. He was a banker back in the 1930s. We didn't have nearly all the safety nets underneath depositors that we have today. So when the Great Depression began in 1929, there was a run on a number of different banks. Eventually, there was a run on her grandfather's bank. Banks never have enough cash on hand to hand out all the money that's been deposited. Monies are loaned out, of course. And our deposits are underwritten now by the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. Not so in the early 30s. And when the people panicked and made a run on the bank, her grandfather had lost everything. She said... He sat in his office late that afternoon trying to figure out what to do next. And finally he drove home and said to his family, I think we need a vacation. Just us. And he got the children and his wife into the car, enough provisions for a few days, and they drove not far from their house up into Canada. Beautiful wooded part of Canada. And they had just a few days, he said, she said, of, of being with each other. And when it was time to go home, he gathered the whole family around and said, I have some really bad news to tell you. And he told them that the bank had failed and that he had no job. But he said, I have a plan. And he laid out what that plan was as to how he was going to find a job and how he would work really hard and how all of them would have to cut back and be more saving be more careful about everything they had, but how they would come through that together. Another family had their roots in Dallas, Texas. And the grandfather in that family said that when he had gone to school in those early years of the 1930s, he didn't always have a lunch. There were days when there simply was nothing to take to eat for lunch at school. And he would watch other children who did have a lunch. And when they had eaten their apple right down to the core and walked away, he would eat the core. He ate whatever was left to make it to the next day and the next day. But he made it. He got an education. He had a job. He was able to care for his family. Another family had told Sue about their parents, grandparents, being immigrants. Started with a grandfather who came to this country, the land of opportunity, just looking for a chance to do well. He walked 
looking for a job. Finally, a small farmer said he would hire him, but he had no place for him to sleep. The men asked, could he sleep in the barn with the cows? Well, sure, he could sleep in the barn if he wanted to. So he slept in the barn. He arranged the hay over in one corner of the barn, and that's where he slept night after night. Worked hard all day long, slept in the barn. But how eventually he went to school, and he got a better job, and then he bought a house, and he got married, and he and his wife started having children, and the grandchildren know that story well. And Sue says when families have stories about good times and bad. But we came through that. We came through that. And we are today who we are. They function better in good times and bad. Paul begins with his story. The story of his people. Once upon a time, he would have said, we were 400 years in slavery. And then God chose our ancestor Moses to go back to Egypt where he had been raised and to face down Pharaoh. God led my people out of Egypt with a cloud. A cloud, which means God heard our prayers. God knew us. God chose us. God led us. He led us through the waters. Now, Paul is saying we, our, we, our. He's incorporating these Gentiles into his story. And he's reinterpreting the symbols. You too have been chosen. You too have gone through the waters. Baptism. You too have been fed in the wilderness the bread of Holy Communion. You too have been given water, the wine of Holy Communion. This is your story. We've been through tough times before. With God's help, we can make it through these tough times. Number two. After he keeps saying all have been led by the cloud, all passed through the waters, all were baptized, all ate this spiritual bread and this spiritual drink, now he says, nevertheless. Nevertheless, most of them did not please God. And they died in the desert. Don't we wish most of us we're doing the right things, that most of us were in our communities of faith week after week, but most of us are not in our faith communities week after week. Most of us are doing what most of us like to do. And Paul says, you need to be really careful because from our story, we can learn about great people and we can learn about some really foolish people. When I first came to this church, <clears throat> I invited Bishop Paul Galloway and Mrs. Galloway to come back to Tulsa for him to be our bishop in residence. They accepted that invitation, of course. The ten years we had with our beloved bishop were wonderful for me and you. After his death, we still had Elizabeth for almost ten years more. And she was a blessing to us as well. I remember one day I was talking with the bishop shortly after they had come here, and I said, Bishop, I'm always looking for illustrations, great stories to illustrate a sermon. Where did you look? And he said, I always loved great biography. I would read book reviews in newspapers and magazines. When somebody said, this is a really good biography, I'd buy that and read it. I said, yeah, but sometimes, Bishop, I've read a whole biography, and I didn't get one good story. He said, wait a second. 
The only criterion is, was it told well? If it was a story told well, then it either is an illustration of how one ought to live or how one ought not to live. But it's an illustration nonetheless. That's what Paul does right here. All right, he said, all did this and this and this and this and this. Wonderful. Guess what? Most of them, most of them did not please God. So we are not to be like them, not desire evil, not become idolaters, not indulge in sexual immorality, not put God and his Christ to the test. And this last one, our translators say complain. The word in Greek is more of grumble. Lord, Paul says, they grumble. Maybe the worst of all, they grumble. Don't, don't be like them. Susan Andrews is a Presbyterian minister up in the Hudson River Valley in, in the state of New York. She's written recently that there are a number of Presbyterian churches in the state of New York who've decided they're not doing prayers of confession anymore. Prayers of confession depress people, and people ought not to have to be depressed when they come to church, so no more prayers of confession. Now, that's not where Susan is, and it's not where we are either, of course. Dr. Kroll led all of us in a prayer of confession just a few minutes ago. But Susan said some of these folks have decided they don't have anything they need to confess. She said it's sort of like that big famous church out in California, and she didn't name it in her article, I won't either, but I'll say that its pastor got to give the invocation at the inauguration this year. <clears throat> and this fellow is so concerned that his people never hear a discouraging word, he will not let the organist play a piece of music that's been written in a minor key. I kid you not. Susan says that these people who think we ought not confess that we ought not talk about sin, often say the church should speak only positive things of good news. But she says, I grew up the daughter of a Presbyterian preacher. My mother was a good singer and sang in the church choir. Every Good Friday, we had a three-hour service built around the seven last words of Christ. And every year, my father was the preacher, my mother was in the choir, and I was a little girl in the congregation. And for three hours, from noon until 3 p.m., remembering those last three hours of Jesus' life here on earth, I heard the same seven last words. And they were painful. I heard hymns and learned to sing them that were heart-rending. I heard the best soloist in our church stand after each of those words, one after one word, one after the other, sing these just heart-piercing kinds of songs. But I tell you that every year I walked out of the church at 3 p.m. feeling cherished and safe and forgiven. Every year cherished, safe, and forgiven. Number three, Paul says, be very careful when you think you are standing that you do not fall. The scholars say that this sentence 
is about military people and that the words for standing and falling here are used in classical Greek more often about the battlefield. It's someone who's standing very tall and proud in the middle of battle, feeling invincible when suddenly a blade or an arrow comes piercing through the air, strikes this warrior, and he goes down. Be careful when you are standing that you do not fall, Paul said. I was reading just recently about a big collection of bronze figurines gathered at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City. Um, I have not seen this collection, but as I read the article, I realized that Gail and I have seen a number of these pieces in our travels. Uh, You know that people who worked in marble were not always great in working with bronze, and people who painted wonderfully well uh, rarely chose to work in bronze. Uh, Some of the better-known names of those who worked in bronze were Donatello, uh, was a great Italian, Ghiberti. If you've been to the magnificent church of Santa Croce in uh, Florence, uh, you've probably seen Ghiberti's doors there. You may recall that uh, in wealthy communities, uh, as Florence was under the uh, Medicis, often didn't build one building, you built three. Uh, One was the church itself, the sanctuary. One was a baptistry. Uh, Baptism was considered so important and that one was baptized to enter into the church that the baptistry was a second building entirely. And often the third building was the bell tower. Uh, In Pisa, they got the church built and the baptistry built. The bell tower went went bad. It was was built on, on soil too sandy and, and it gave way. Pisa was once right on the coast. Uh, uh, gradually the river filled in there, and it's farther inland now, but, but it was right on the coast at one time, and the bell tower started sinking. Nonetheless, in Florence, uh, the baptistry of the Church of Santa Croce, the Holy Cross, has the Ghiberti doors, and they're known worldwide for being some of the greatest bronze work ever done. And there's another fellow, Francois Lespengula, just a funny name to get to say. Uh, but he, too, did wonderful work in bronze. Now, as I was reading this article about this collection of these bronze images in New York, the author said, but most of the great works of bronze have been lost because they were melted down to make cannons when the next war came along. And most of the people who were shaped in bronze thought they were terribly important. And they were melted down to be made into cannon when the next war came along and the next war always came. Number four. Number four. He will not ever let more come into your life than you can withstand. If you could read this in Greek, you would see a very interesting turn of phrase here. Paul's good at this. What he literally says is, there will never be a suffering where God does not provide the exodus. You see, he began by talking about the exodus from Egypt. And now he's saying, there will never be a time when there is not a way through and out 
a way that frees. Even if it's death. We believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. So in this life, in this life, we are to focus upon our story. We are to emulate those who've done really well and avoid doing what those who didn't do well ended up doing with their lives. We are not to be so pompous as to think nothing can ever befall us. And we are to be asking God's Holy Spirit every time we come to the table to cleanse us and cleanse us. The Dalai Lama was recently invited to Harvard Divinity School. Uh, He was engaging in a dialogue, not a debate I guess, but a dialogue with another theologian. The other theologian was saying you could have love and hate in your heart at the same time. You could have love and hate. The Dalai Lama said, not so. Not so. Not, not, in, not in his religion. That in fact, one ought to be growing all the time so that the bad, the dark, the angry, the hurting thoughts are pushed out And that which is light, joy, beauty, meaning, purpose, ushered in. He remarked about the ongoing struggles the Tibetan people have with the Chinese. Recently, uh, there was another uh, attempt to squash all revolt within Tibet. And a group of people were rounded up and thrown into prison. One of those men was horribly... uh, punished and persecuted for nothing except wanting his people to be free. And finally, after months of torture, he was released. And the Dalai Lama said that he had opportunity to see this man. He said you could tell by looking at him, his body, he had been through a really difficult time in prison. But when the two of us talked, just two of us, he said to me, I had two really difficult times. And the Dalai Lama said, Oh, times when you almost died? And he said, No, times when I almost hated 